Good afternoon and hope you're having a good Thursday so far. Thanks so much for being with us. Lots to get to as we look ahead to the modeling numbers that will be released later this afternoon, taking a look at where we are in BC when it comes to COVID-19 cases. Also coming up on the program, we're going to talk about safe supply of opioids and the announcement earlier today as well by the minister in charge of mental health and mental health resources in this province when it comes to beds and treatment for particularly young people when it comes to addiction. And uh, we're also going to talk about something on a bit of a lighter note, but certainly restaurants have been part of the conversation and it says it's one of the industries that has been very hard hit with COVID-19. Restaurants shut down for weeks, uh, opening up to a lesser capacity. Why some restaurants are getting rid of tipping. And we're going to open up the phone lines and get your take on that as well. First, though, we know from the numbers yesterday that BC has recorded 85 new cases. That was the third highest single day total since the start of the pandemic. And it does have a lot of people wondering and concerned. What does that mean as far as people perhaps being admitted to hospital? Are we going to see rising numbers on that front or rising numbers in total infections? Let's bring in Caroline Colleen, Canada 150 Research Chair in Mathematics for Infection, Evolution and Public Health at SFU. Uh, Caroline, thanks for being with us once again. Hi. Uh, I, I know we don't have the numbers that uh, that are coming out. They will be coming out in just a few hours this afternoon, but you're able to look at the numbers that we do have so far, uh, where we were, where we are now. What do you think about, uh, particularly given that yesterday's number was 85 new cases of COVID-19? Uh, Yeah, that's a big number for BC, and it's getting up to where we were in March. I think it's really worrying, not just about where we are uh, and where we've been, but more about where we're headed. So, you know, we had 11 or 12 cases for a while. We were kind of ticking along and thinking that was fine. And then we started reopening. Summer happened. We had more social gatherings. And I think it's really worrying that these uh, transmissions are in the broader community. They're You know, it's tragic when something happens in a long-term care facility or in a defined, separated population where mostly uh, we might hope that the uh, new cases, although they're tragic in and of themselves, won't kind of have a reach towards uh, causing more undetected outbreaks. And that's not the case here. Here, this is general community transmission. It's rising. It's rising exponentially. We could be causing more cases than everyone else in Canada and in all the other provinces in, in weeks' time. And I think it's it's really worrying. I think we, we kind of got this complacency and, and we shouldn't have. And now we're, we're not headed in a good direction. Uh, is there concern as well with the announcement of the 85 new cases yesterday, but the still the numbers that show the people in hospital as well as people in ICU are still extremely low. But with a case number like 85, can we expect that? in the next four days, five days, the next week, that number will also rise? It might. I think uh, it depends a bit on the social groups who are impacted. Uh, that's also, I think we have to remember, where we don't detect all the cases. So we the, the immunity results suggested maybe we're getting about a tenth or maybe an eighth of the cases. So imagine there might even have been 850, not 85, um, who are out there. And I think it's... There is a risk that they they will move into older social groups because nobody's isolated from anybody. I think we also have to remember that COVID-19 can have really severe long-term disabling impacts on adults who are not in ICUs, who are not hospitalized, and who do not die. 
And we don't want that either. So these are, you know, potentially long-term heart damage, long-term lung damage, long-term nerve damage. Very serious conditions can happen, even for people who have disease that doesn't, COVID disease in their main, like first time they, they, you know, they perceive it, they have it, uh, doesn't cause hospitalization or really severe. So I think we we shouldn't just say, oh, it's all right, because, you know, people haven't died (laughs) Um, I think that's that's really simplistic, and I think it is partly to do with the fact that this is in a, a healthy adult population rather than in long-term care or in a vulnerable population. Right, and that's what Dr. Bonnie Henry said yesterday, too, when talking about this, saying that the majority of new cases are in young people, and not to paint all young people with the same brush. Certainly there are young people that are still taking precautions and taking this very seriously and following the rules. Uh, but does that make you think, and you touched on this, that these are the known cases, these are not... The this is not the true number of the cases that are out there, of the disease that is out there. That's right. These are the known cases. Some of the unknown cases are probably not symptomatic and not having severe disease, and that's uh, you know probably good for them. But it, that means that in a matter, it's a matter of time. Uh, there's still a risk that they could be infecting others and not know it. Um, I also think, you know, even if people are obeying the rules, if the rules are, you know, you can go out with this many people indoors and, you know, in a bar or in a party, and then the next day you can go out with this many people, but they're different people. And then the next day, you know, you can still be following the rules and actually taking a lot of risk for you and those around you. So we've opened these venues because we love them, you know, and we need to socialize bars, uh, restaurants, parties, uh, people need that. And you mentioned uh, at the top of the show, mental health. I think it's really important, but I think we have to find ways to do those things safely, or we have to be stopping doing them, you know, another six weeks or another four weeks, and then maybe relax a bit and, and then camp down a bit, especially in the regions like Vancouver Coastal Health and Fraser Health, where, Community transmission could get out of control really fast, and we've seen what that looks like in other jurisdictions, and it doesn't look great. So we need to avoid that, and we need to do it right now. Uh, do you think there's any value in a, a different type of testing or the expanded testing? And I ask only because anecdotally I heard from somebody, and this was a young person who was at a graduation party, and it was in small town BC. It was close to the Alberta border. This this just happened within the last few days. Somebody at the party was sick. So this person proactively thought, I want to get tested. I was close to this person. I I may have been exposed, couldn't get tested in BC, went across the border, got tested in Calgary, tested positive, came back home to BC and isolated, did the right thing, went into isolation, but only because that person went out of their way to go and get a test and and find that out. Had they not, they would have continued on their life and, and possibly exposed any number of people. Yeah. If that's happening widely, that would be a huge problem. Um, I was under the impression that if you go through the online survey or call 811 or whatever and you're directed to testing, that testing is available in BC. I think testing is fantastic when people do that. You know, if people actually respond to the result, get the test, get it in a timely way, respond to the result, isolate, that is incredibly helpful. Um, testing in and of itself, of course, unless you do, unless you can do something, the contact tracing, the public service announcements, which they did in Kelowna, and it was really helpful. They did three public service announcements. They did a lot of testing. They were running hundreds of tests every day, uh, and I think that can help. And that is exactly what we should we should be doing. We should be offering tests, um, and we should probably for now also be staying away from uh, those kind of, you know, and for, from indoor socializing and and parties and things like that too 
Um, and people who are sick obviously should should be staying home. So I, I think it's a combination of all of these things. They're all part of the the toolkit, and we should certainly be offering testing. Uh, testing is apparently unpleasant and um, you know labor intensive. So I think it's going to be great when the saliva you know strip tests at home tests come out, and hopefully that'll be developed. But yeah, in the meantime, we do need to be especially when we have community transmission, we need to be doing a great job at finding cases. And that's exactly part of it. Right. Because at this point, I think you you can go for a test, especially in the bigger urban centers. If you have any of the symptoms, you can go, whether it's one of the drive-through testing sites or clinics and get that done. But, but my guess is, and what, from my, what I understand from this is this is somebody that didn't have symptoms, but was concerned because of a possible exposure and that right. didn't qualify. Right. And that's, you know, it depends if, if an outbreak is called or, you know, if we, there's a defined kind of cluster that'll trigger different levels of investigation. Um, and I think, it, you know, we always lag a little bit behind. And it, there are many jurisdictions in B.C. that just haven't had very many cases or, or probably some places haven't had any cases. Um, and so, you know, would we put intensive, you know, pop up testing stands in those places before that party happened? Probably not thinking that maybe they're not high risk, but but I think we also need to evaluate that risk in really dynamically and be able to respond to it. And that's not just for, for testing practices, but also for people's actions and behaviors, because we do hold a lot of the power here because we can shape this by how we contact each other. Do you think that at what we're at now with about the 65% or if the goal is 65% of our normal exposures, is that working or perhaps the modeling we'll see later today might show us it's not? It's not working. I, I mean, we are above that threshold. We are clearly seeing exponential growth. We are not below that contact level. So from that point of view, we need to be reducing our contact. So we need to be reducing it quickly before we even think about uh, in areas where there's strong community transmission before we reopen schools, because getting community transmission low so that those high schoolers and kids going into schools aren't exposed before they get there is one of the most powerful tools that we can have. All right, we'll leave it there for today. Caroline, thank you so much. Always great to talk with you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Well, a few months ago, this was before the pandemic hit, which is hard to think about or even remember back to at this point. I was able to go to a news conference. It was the unveiling of a very different type of vending machine. It was located on the downtown east side in Vancouver. And not only did I meet people that were working with the program that involved the machine, but also some of the people who were going to be the recipients of the opioids that were dispensed from the machine. It was a very interesting uh, whole event to to talk to people involved in this. Well, that particular project has just been given a big financial boost to expand as well. And joining me to talk a bit more about what this means is Dr. Mark Tyndall, a global expert on the opioid crisis, also the executive director of what's called the My Safe Society. Dr. Tyndall, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, thanks. My pleasure. Uh, what does this mean for, for that type of program? Because when that was launched in Vancouver, it was a small program with just a few people that were taking part, does this mean that's going to be happening in other cities and other neighborhoods? Yeah, well, the idea is that it will now uh, be able to expand. We have just had the one machine since uh, December of last year, so about eight months, and we really have uh, not had any funding to expand it and so we've just had the one machine but uh now we have uh, five other 
uh, units ready and they'll be deployed in uh, different sites across Canada. And can you explain how it works for, I didn't do a great job there, for people that aren't familiar with the program itself? Sure. So it's really to give people the option to have a safer opioid supply. Right now we're uh, using uh, hydromorphone or dilated pills that people get from the machine, but um, it could be equipped to uh, hand out other other types of uh, other types of drugs. But um, people who are at risk of overdose and at the beginning, um, everybody on the program had a history of overdose. Everybody had fentanyl in their urine. And so people at very high risk of dying of overdoses. And uh, they were screened. And if they fulfilled those criteria, uh, the machine um, recognizes biometrics. So you, we register them into the machine. They put their hand up and it dispenses uh, hydromorphone pills directly to them. And does it work as far as somebody might hear that and think, well, that's great if it keeps somebody alive and it helps somebody as a form of treatment. But are we are we doing anything to try and and if somebody wants to not use drugs at all or wants to go into some kind of a program to to kick the habit altogether? Uh, Sure, there's lots of opportunity for people to do that. I mean, with the with the one machine now, um, I personally have written most of the scripts and I know people quite well. And uh, it's uh, really remarkable to see how uh, their lives have improved as far as not having to hustle for money and drugs and uh, have given them the opportunity to uh, work on other things, housing and uh, reducing their drug use. So uh, it, to me, it's a, it's a necessary first step for a lot of people who uh, will eventually pursue uh, uh, drug treatment. Uh, the location was something that was brought up for uh, some because I, I remember you talking about the people and it's a very small group using the one machine uh, that proximity to the machine played a huge role into whether somebody would actually make the trip each time they can come and put the biometrics in and get the dose. So do you think that by having more machines in more areas that will make it more accessible? Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, all of the, our harm reduction services and really all of our social services uh, need to be at a place where people can actually access them. And uh, so, yeah, the more opportunity people have to access these in a, uh, you know, in a convenient and close location, uh, the more likely people are to, uh, to use it. Uh, so does this funding or does this expansion then mean that it's going to be in other uh, right across the country? Or do you know, do you have specific areas where you would like to see these machines? Well, funding is still an issue. Um, there, We did get some money to actually build more machines, more from an industry grant, but uh, we're still waiting for uh, funding from, from health and from the overdose crisis. And we've been in conversation with the province and, the, uh, and, the, and Health Canada. Um, so that's still pending to be able to really expand this program. So um, I look at the first machine as really just testing out the feasibility. You know, do people use them? Is it safe? You know, is it, is it consistent? Can we regulate the drugs? And I think we've, we've proven that we can do that with the technology uh, the next step would be more real world. So um, there's going to be a, mach- a machine in Victoria, two more in Vancouver, one in Halifax and one in London, Ontario, to try to get a, a more uh, cr- across country uh, look at this. And then uh, hopefully the next step would be to uh, uh, just keep producing more machines and uh, make it accessible to people.
Is there a way that you think to look at it? If somebody was only going to look at this at cost and say, what is the difference then between the the cost of putting these machines in places where they're accessible and people can get the doses they need compared to if somebody is overdosing, if somebody needs paramedics to come and save them, if somebody needs hospital treatment because of bad drugs? Is there a way to even compare the two? Well, it's really hard. I mean, you know, off, uh, you know, if you ask how much it costs for uh, a call, ambulance call for somebody who's overdosing, anywhere from one thousand to fifteen hundred dollars just for that. But um, often it leads to hospitalizations and um, many more uh, expenses after that. But uh, clearly, um, the argument that this is, you know, we shouldn't be spending our money this way uh, makes no sense because the status quo is. Uh, exceedingly expensive so uh you know even for even for the criminal activity that has to occur to for people in order to support their uh drug use um you know this really cuts into that so um from a you know the way we want to spend our money as a as a society um there's no doubt in my mind that uh providing people drugs is uh is a is a good first step and very cost effective and you know i spent you know, a lot of years um, working around supervised injection sites and with the poison drug supply, it, it becomes a, a bit ridiculous just to sit there, watch people come in with drugs that we know are poison, um, wait till they overdose and then intervene when we could um, get way ahead of that by just offering people a safer supply of drugs to begin with. So it, what we're doing now is uh, definitely saving lives, but, um, you know, we're obviously just not winning and uh, why would we um, knowingly allow people to use these poison drugs when uh, we could offer them an alternative? Uh, all right. When do you expect, uh, I know you said funding is still an issue. When do you expect or think that we might see the expansion uh, of the machines? Well, the ones coming to Vancouver uh, should be on the truck uh, this week. So uh, in the next, uh, next two or three weeks, um, we should have at least two or three more operational. All right. Uh, We will uh, hopefully touch base with you again uh, about this. Dr. Tyndall, thanks so much for making some time for us today. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you. Well, coming up on the program, we are going to talk more about the COVID-19 numbers in light of the modeling numbers that are coming out at 3 p.m. today. Also taking a look at schools and one part of the school system that isn't being looked at all that much as we look at reopening schools in the fall. But right now we're going to take a break from that. And this is something that's happening happening in Toronto. But my guess is there are people in B.C. and in Metro Vancouver who will have an opinion on this as well. Some Toronto residents. Restaurants recovering from COVID-19, like all restaurants are, are moving to ban tipping and instead bring in an enforced gratuity. Uh, Servers are talking about this, some saying that people since the reopening have been tipping more, others saying it's gone in the other direction and they're seeing a lack of tips. Uh, Here is a server in Toronto who talked about this idea. People who see you in your mask, they see you working hard, they're like, let me be very generous. I'm going to give you like 30, 40, 50% tip. And then there's the people coming out for a really quick bite, but they don't actually have a job. They just don't have that much money. So they they come, they enjoy your service, they give you a verbal tip, like your service is wonderful, and then they give you no monetary tip. Let's bring in James Roulette, Vice President of Central Canada for the industry group Restaurants Canada. James, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What's your thought on this idea of getting rid of of voluntary tipping and bringing in that mandatory gratuity? 
Well, it's something we've seen in the uh, industry a few times. Uh, it comes and goes. Uh, people try to do it. I think there's a pretty high-profile uh, restaurant uh, in Vancouver probably a year and a half ago that tried to do it. Unfortunately, it didn't work. Um, but uh, it's starting to, to have more people trying it. So uh, we'll see if, if uh, consumers like it, then it, it will probably take on. Uh, we've seen it, haven't we, that it's it seems to be more acceptable or people don't question it as much when it's in a larger group or restaurants saying any groups of six or more or eight or more, uh, we're going to put on a, a 15% gratuity or a certain percent gratuity. Uh, do you think that, that there is that possibility of getting buy-in for smaller groups? Um, I, I think it is possible uh, if uh, people see that um, that servers are benefiting from it if they see that uh, if they look at it as a more fair way to do it then that's that's definitely possible um, the the issue in the past has always been the sticker shock if people see that the the bill is higher before the tip they they, they uh they just wonder why. So that's been the uh, issue in the past. But if people get over that, uh, perhaps they'll they'll uh, buy into this. There have also been other cases. I remember a, a restaurant in Oregon a couple of years ago uh, got rid of tipping, but made a point of telling patrons, we don't want you to tip because instead we've taken it upon ourselves to give our staff a living wage. We've upped the wages so servers don't have to rely on tips and also made reference to, to kind of the racist background of tipping and saying it, it started as something that wasn't so great and they wanted to, to get rid of that. Uh, do you think there's there's opportunity there? Yeah, well, I, th- I think definitely uh, the industry is looking at every every part of the industry and and, and looking at uh, things that may have, have a history that uh, that aren't isn't something we want to keep around. Uh, we're definitely changing uh, the culture in in, in kitchens, etc. So, you know, if if those things are still standing in the way, it'll definitely be something that we look into. Um, it's a it's a education piece as well as I, I think if people are very clear that um, that this money this uh, additional charge goes directly to the this wait staff and to the uh, back of house uh, then I think people understand that so it's an education piece. Have things changed or have you heard that things have changed as far as people getting back into restaurants as they start reopening during this pandemic? Um. Yeah, well, as as people come back, I, I think we're we're seeing both. And as your intro said, uh, some people are tipping more, some people aren't tipping as much. But uh, I think in general, I really haven't heard much uh, that has significantly changed. Um, one thing, one opportunity we do have is now it's it's kind of like the industry's hit a reset button, and if people want to try things like this, uh, it's probably the, a good time to try it. And I guess is that that kind of a silver lining, I guess, in that as things restart and reopen, there is that opportunity to see what works, what doesn't work, or maybe what needs to change. Yeah, for sure. It's it's a time that owners and operators, uh, as well as staff, are, are saying, uh, I, I wonder why we've always done it this way. And, and is this an opportunity that we can ask ourselves these questions? And is there a better way to do it? Um, we talked last week as well uh, about the uh, Deloitte uh, uh, 
Dalhousie, the Delo- sorry, the, not Deloitte, the Dalhousie University study that took a look at the billions of potential losses for restaurants. Uh, it's got to be, uh, I mean, frightening though, even as restaurants are opening up and, and finding in places here in BC a lot are getting patio approvals and in ways, innovative ways to try and get through this pandemic. It's got to still be a very frightening industry to be in and to look to the future. It definitely is. Uh, when you look at the amount of money that uh, people have lost as a as a whole and also individually, uh, you, you, you had months and months where they had no revenue whatsoever and yet they were still paying rent, et cetera. So that's a big hole that they they were dug into. So um, it's going to be a while before the business gets back. We estimate uh, um, at least a year and a half before people start getting back into a profitability. So... That's a long time in the industry. Um, you know, people people don't say I, I miss. I didn't eat out for a couple months, so I'm going to eat out twice as much going forward. Uh, those are that's that lost revenue is lost forever. So, going forward, hopefully the industry can uh, find some innovative ways to uh, to get back on its feet. All right, James, we'll leave it there for today. But appreciate uh, you taking the time to chat with us. Well, thanks for your interest, and you have a great day. Okay. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Well, a lot of people are concerned given the latest numbers, that number of 85 new cases yesterday. We are going to see the new modeling numbers this afternoon at three o'clock. And that has a lot of people talking about a possible second wave of COVID-19. So what have we learned so far in this pandemic that could at least help us in that scenario? Lauren Falkenberg is a senior associate dean in uh, of business at the University of Calgary and joins me on the line to talk a bit more about this. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for... What have we learned, do you think, as far as everything we know now about testing, about contact tracing, about how much contact we can have with the the people in our so-called bubbles? What have we learned and what can we take from that when we look at the possibility of a second wave? is we reviewed what we thought was effective across the globe. And I think one of the big takeaways for us is that there wasn't any one thing that was effective. It was the combination. And so we needed to think about what are six things that really make a difference and maybe keep us from having to do this blanket shutdown. And I think one that really stood out um, is simple behaviors are the most effective response. And that goes back to Bonnie Henry who wrote a book in 2009, Soap and Water, um, I think Mass now, um, and Hand Sanitizer. If we, and social distancing, really practice these seriously, we can uh, limit the spread of this virus. And probably, if you, I don't know, do you know anybody who's had a cold? So probably (laughs) other viruses as well. Um, Testing and tracking are critical. And if we want to avoid a blanket shutdown, what we have to do is track for hot spots. And hot spots are those are those places where there's been a big breakout, maybe accidentally, but we need to go in, examine, review, and then reopen. So, uh, and constant testing is critical because we have people who are asymptomatic. We need to be able to go back in and and. Uh, go through the whole system to see who might have been in contact with it. Another one that I think um, some countries have done exceptionally well, and that's consistency in communication. 
Um, it shapes norms. It keeps us following those simple behaviors. It reminds us of what we're doing. And the more consistent the message, the uh, more conformity, and I, I use that in a positive sense, to those norms that we have. And it kind of surprises me that we haven't done a better job because we are, as a, as a society, we're great marketers. We should know how to send out that communication. Um, another key thing is when we're building models is businesses do adapt quickly. And so if we keep them informed and business leaders are informed, they can make very simple and technological changes very, very quickly. And I think we probably all appreciate what retail stores have done in terms of protecting us and allowing us to shop. Digital technology has been growing and it um, allows us to go into tech and that will continue to grow. I think one of my biggest concerns was that when we build these models, we don't build in social costs over and above, um, we'll say, deaths or healthcare costs related to COVID. So what we've learned is domestic abuse cases have gone up, suicide rates have gone up. Um, in the States, there, there's been that loss of health insurance if you're unemployed. So health inequities have gone up, making it even worse. So we really need to stand back and think about what are those costs and build them in so that the model balances things more quickly. And the last lesson is that no economy is immune. And so we need all of the countries talking together to coordinate what they're going to do so that um, supply chains don't break down, people have access to the products they need, and countries' economies are all linked, and so they need to work together. So those were the six lessons we uh, picked up as we went through all the literature. Uh, it is interesting. And even going back to the second one uh, you were talking about with testing and tracking where well, we have hot spots as well. Uh, I, I would wonder too, or, and think that the, the serology testing, the antibody testing will also come into play because you talked about people who are asymptomatic, who uh, without having that at some point in the future would, pro- would never know that they even had the virus. Yeah, that's right. But what I think, and, and I didn't put this in because it's so ambiguous and uncertain right now, but we really don't know if there is a herd immunity or how long your resistance to the virus lasts once you've had it. And those are two big unknowns that we don't know yet. Uh, and also taking a look at children, and we've been talking a lot about that too with the return of school just a, a couple of weeks away. Uh, there have been so many studies or looking at, at are children more uh, resistant to this because they've had vaccines that older people haven't had? Is it because of their immune systems that they're not as developed as adults? It seems like there's a lot there that we still need to figure out. I agree. And so um, if, if, if we say that and say, let's say that's one of the lessons we haven't learned, then it goes back to how much can we reinforce with children these simple behaviors. And I guess for me, my own personal opinion is that some of these behaviors maybe need to become norms going forward, even post-COVID, if there ever is a post-COVID, because they do make sense. And you talk about consistency. I think that's one of the areas too. And and it's, and it's, I think also because we've been learning so much about this virus as we go, and maybe it could have come sooner, but consistency, even in something like the messaging around masks. Absolutely. And I think you can see that. I mean, we've had a few um, disagreements over masks across the country, but it seems when you look at across the globe, 
any of the communities were uh, that were wearing masks, the transmission went down pretty fast. And so we may not have necessarily the right science for it, but we certainly need to look at what behaviors are effective, and that is one that has really stood out. And also the uh, the kind of the consistency. I think uh, you make a point there that if we stay consistent, though, once once something is in place, uh, then it does become it becomes force of habit. In that you don't leave your house without a mask, or you don't leave your house without hand sanitizer on your person in case you find yourself in a scenario where there's no soap and water to wash your hands. Exactly, and it's amazing to me how many of the stores and other you know restaurants, whatever. The minute you walk in, you sanitize. Um, and people are just getting really into that habit. And I think it's having an impact just not on COVID, but like I said, on the common cold. All right. We'll leave it there for today. Interesting uh, lessons and taking a look at that and what we have learned and can learn. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us to talk more about that. Okay. And thank you for uh, having me on your show.